1: I thought, if I'm serious about this writing stuff, I better write some one-act plays and hone my craft. And every time I wrote a one-act play, it ended up being funny. I didn't know, but I was absolutely grooming myself to be a showrunner in half-hour, because all my theater training was, I I know stage combat, I can hang lights, I can sew costumes, I've done summer stock, I was the transportation captain while acting in three of the plays. So your 10,000 hours, I got that early on. So I knew every aspect of production.
0: Alright, I'm very excited. My guest today started off as a writer on The Cosby Show, moved on to A Different World, created Roseanne and Home Improvement and also co-created Different World, produced huge hit movies like What Women Want. There's so much to talk about, but I'm so glad he's here. Please welcome my guest today, Matt Williams. (laughs) Thank you, Barry. So excited to have you here. I have so much to cover because you are a big part of my life and a big part of America and the world's life. So let's just start. For those of you who are listening, Matt Williams, a Caucasian man, yet his first job in television is on an African-American show. Tell me how that happened.
1: I I went to New York uh, having been a theater major. I got all my degrees in theater. And I went there to... Act And direct plays, and i was I was knocking around. I knew I wanted to um, tell stories primarily, so i was I was supporting myself as an actor, I was directing, and then, in order to have something to direct, i couldn't afford royalties because I had no money. I was living in one room you know with a hot plate, and I even had to lie that I had a job in order to get that studio apartment at the time because <laughs> they didn't want to give it to an actor or a director, but I started writing to have something to direct. And I started writing some one-act plays. I wrote a full-length play. It went on. It played the Kennedy Center. It got published. But I thought, if I'm serious about this writing stuff, I better write some one-act plays and hone my craft. And every time I wrote a one-act play, it ended up being funny.
0: How do you learn how to write a one-act play for those of us in our audience? Because I, a lot of people don't know this. Like, well, It's different have, from half hour. Or... No, it's not, really. And I didn't know,
1: but I was absolutely grooming myself to be a showrunner in half hour because all my theater training was I I, I know stage combat. I can hang lights. I can sew costumes. I've done summer stock. I was the transportation captain while acting in three of the plays. So your 10,000 hours, I got that early on. So I knew every aspect of production. And so I, I had been trained as an actor. I'd been trained as a director. But I literally went out and read every single book I could find about dramatic structure. What makes a story work? How does this story?
0: Do you remember some of the books for our audience? Absolutely. You... Uh,
1: the, a guy named Kenneth Rowe. This is you won't even find this book. It's out of print. Kenneth Rowe was Arthur Miller's playwriting teacher, and he wrote a terrible titled book that is brilliant called Write That Play. And he was the one that I went, oh, I see. This is how stories work. Laos Egri's book, uh, Dramatic Structure. I I went through them all, but Kenneth Rowe especially. There's two chapters in his book that changed my life because I, I go, oh, I see what drives a story. I know there's a major dramatic question established at the beginning, and you wait the whole play to answer that question. So I started.
0: What were the chapters' names, just so we know what they were that changed your life? Do you remember?
1: I don't remember offhand. It was primarily... What he drove home is what makes a story work. The two pistons that drive a story are discoveries and decisions. I walk into the room. I discover Barry, and he's standing here with my wife, naked. I've got to make a decision. Do I punch? My so wife? do I.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: do you. Do I punch him in the face? Do I throw my wife out the window? Do I turn around and walk out? Or do, what do I do? My decision is going to lead to the next thing. So uh, so that 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 throughout every story has a major dramatic question.
0: I want you to know that I can guarantee you that the majority of the people listening here and even the majority of the people who are aspiring to be writers or who are comedians who want to write their first thing I can guarantee that most of them don't know what you just said, because that's an incredible revelation. Because we think that because we're funny or because artists are funny, they think, hey, well, I do it on stage. I make it happen there. I can make it happen here. But it's a different muscle.
1: Totally. It's narrative drive. And so back to The Cosby Show, I I honed my craft by writing these one-act plays. A, A woman named Lou Moore said, I think these plays are really funny. I think we can get an HBO special. My first trip to L.A., I'm in the Valley at the Sportsman's Lodge, and I'm in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> and met with uh, HBO. But I met Jay Sandridge, phenomenal yeah. director of Half-Hour yes. TV. And Jay said, these plays are really funny. Uh, it didn't come together. They were going to do uh, like a two-hour special of, of these plays, and it never came together. But lo and behold, I'm off. I'm acting. I'm directing plays. I'm uh, I'm I'm supporting myself. And then I get a call literally right before the Cosby show premiered and they said, Jay Sandridge handed us all your one act plays. We think they're really funny. Would you come in for an interview? And I said, sure. And I sat down with Tom Warner and he, he's all nervous because literally they had fired everyone, but one writer, Bill fired all the writers cause he didn't want joke writers. He hated that Bob of Bing type humor. He wanted real behavior. He wanted relationship. So I sat down with Tom and he says, uh, 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 do you think you can write television? And I said, I don't have any idea, if I can. He says, but, uh, but are you funny? And I said, not necessarily. <laughs> and he goes, well, <clears throat> uh, do you th- do you think you can do this? And I said, I have no idea. I said, I'll tell you what I do. I know how stories work. And if the characters are funny, I can write them funny. But I'm not a joke writer. I can't sit and construct a joke, but I can I know how to construct a story.
0: What's interesting is Tom Warner and Marcy Carcy. they ran Carcy Warner. It always seemed, when I was around them, that every show that they were on, the lead person was completely just destroying their lives. They never seemed to work with an easy person, an easy creative person. There was always a person that was more difficult They're not going to work every day saying, I'm going to be difficult, but they just were creatively powerful people. And Cosby was the kind of person the stories were when I was going back during that time and thinking of the stories of having people on the show or casting, that he was the kind of guy that people would write a script and they'd say, listen, Bill, we got to give these notes. I'll fix it on the floor. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you mean you'll fix it on the floor? We have young kids. We have people. No, I'll fix it on the floor. Don't worry. And he would just go, and the actors would have to react, and the writers were just sitting there feeling hopeless.
1: A, a lot of that was true early on, and then what we'd learned was how to write Bill. And when Bill read the one X that I sent in, he went, I like this. These are funny. He says, and there are no jokes. <laughs> because <laughs> we were in Bill's office, his dressing room one day, the cigar, the cappuccino, and he took his tennis shoe off, and he held it up in the air. And he said, boys... I'd rather have you call this a tennis shoe than make a joke about it. He said, just, he says, you write characters. And he said, there's no color on this show. We're writing character, not color. Okay. And he, his rule was find truthful, authentic human behavior, and then we'll exaggerate it to make it funny. So I kind of talk about a perfect match. I'm not a joke writer. If it sounded like a joke, if it sounded to Bill, like structure, structure, punch, That was the first thing he threw out. That's the first thing he threw out. And then when when people used to read a a Cosby show script, they would read and go, this ain't funny. Because a typical Cosby scene was Rudy would have her hand in the bottom of a cereal uh, box looking for the toy. And Bill would walk in with this child's hand in a cereal box and he'd just stare at her. And the audience would start laughing. And she'd look up at him and they'd laugh some more. And then he would say something like, Um, enjoying your breakfast (laughs) now that's not a that's not a joke but the basic premise of Cosby show is how do you live with all these brain-dead children because it was, I'm smarter you than... You kind of went
0: into a little Cosby there. It was kind of <laughs> nice. It was a partial impression of Cosby there. <laughs> well, it is. And these are brain-dead children. I and, expect uh, <laughs> you to say Jell-O pudding after that. Jell-O
1: pudding. <laughs> <laughs> but with Bill, so I I got it. He goes, find what's human, find what's real, and write, you know, really extreme attitudes. And so when uh, 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 Carsey Werner hired me, it was like the shortest minimalist contract you could possibly have. It was six weeks and we're going to pay you $2 a week and you
0: just don't do anything but shut up and sit in the corner. But what's amazing is that, so you go into your first interview for a television show with the guy who's the head of the studio. And this is a rarity. He's more nervous than you are. Well, I think it's because they went, Holy hell.
1: None of these people, they're writing sitcoms. Bill doesn't want sitcom writing. How many people had he fired before you got there? Uh, he had fired the head writer and probably four or five others. And so they were scraping the bottom of the barrel, so I got hired. <laughs> so, But it really was because vo- he had such a voice. And here's how Bill would work. He would come in. This is a true story. He'd say, boys, take out your notepads. He goes, here's a story. You ready? He said, this is it. He goes, Rudy can't find her sock. He slapped his hands together, he could write the shit out of it. <laughs> and so we're all looking at each other. And go, uh, and then we we had to go back. John Marcus and Carmen Finestra and I, and later Gary Cotton. Go, Rudy can't find her sock. Now let's let's translate that in <laughs> Bill E's. What does that mean? What Bill wants to do? Ah, we got it. Bill wants to go from room to room and find every drawer open. And he can look at these drawers and, you know, and he he can react. He can just react to this. And then, you know, you're going to build up to a scene about Rudy and why that sock was so important to her. So find human behavior and 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 just run with it.
0: How do you think Bill knew this instinctually knew that this is how it was going to be successful? Because you can just imagine the network getting the draft and the president of the network at the time looking at it and saying, what are we going to do here? This doesn't fun How did he instinctually know? Because Bill told me a story that when he
1: first got to New York, he was a baby stand-up. right? He went to club to club to club and he saw this one doing political and this one doing racial and this one doing this kind of comedy. And he went, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And he's, and think, think of what he did. Fat Albert. He drew from his childhood. He, it always started with character, not with concept. Started with character. And he knows if the, hey, 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 everybody knows Fat Albert, right? So he would, he, he, his whole stand up, uh, routine and the HBO special that Tom and Marcy saw with Bill, where he's talking about living with these kids. Everything came from, every story on the Cosby show came from a true life incident. Guess what happened? I wrote an episode called Claire's Toe. Bill came back one day from vacation, and he said, you know what? I The damnedest thing happened. My wife broke her little toe, stubbed it on a table, but she bought a new pair of shoes for this opening, and there was no way she was not going to wear those shoes. He said, so I watched my wife stuff a broken toe into a new pair of shoes and grit her teeth and limp all night because she was going to wear those shoes. <laughs> well, okay, you go, okay, that's it. That's that's real human behavior. Now let's let's find a story for that and put that uh, you know in into motion.
0: That's tremendous. <clears throat> so it's incredible to me that your first job in the business is you get to work with this guy and you survive. You're there for like three or four years while people are getting fired left and right around you, yet you're not nervous. You're not walking on eggshells, and. Do you just believe in yourself that much that you know that you're going to always get a job no matter what? You just, at this point, you realize, hey, I've survived here and I'm not worried about anything. I guess that's true
1: because I thought I can always go back to off off Broadway and and direct a uh, you know a a, a bad avant garde play in somebody's basement you know I always <laughs> yeah for
0: one that. one thousandth of what you're making on the Cosby I know but I'll tell you so I'm, you start making money you got money in your bank account now and it's yeah. like from nothing you go from a playwright who's living in a studio apartment and now if you'll oblige me you don't have to say specifically but. You're making the kind of money now that it's like crazy because of the unions, the way they right. are and what you pay. Even as a minimum wage writer, back then you are probably making at least $3,000 a week or something like that. Right. And what did you do? Were you the kind of guy who stayed in your studio apartment or did you just... Uh... I
1: did. I, I will tell you this honestly. And I've, I've been very fortunate and have made a lot of money in this industry. Any time... I've ever sat out and thought, boy, this is going to make me a lot of money. It usually failed. I just write stories. And if people like those stories now, it changes through the years because of demographics and the fragmentation of TV and all that. Because, uh, with Cosby, I'm going to tell you a story I've told a few times, but it's, it's the key to why I've been successful in television. I, I promise you, this was the epiphany. This was the moment that changed my life. I was standing next to Bill it was probably the, my second or third third month on the job. I'm, I'm standing next to Bill Cosby at a run-through. And we're watching a scene between Rudy and Theo. And they're in there and they're doing a scene. And all of a sudden I feel this elbow in my ribs. And I look over and it's Bill. And he leans over and he's got his cigar and he goes, Hey man, if you were sitting at home right now, wouldn't you want to be a part of this family? And I went, there's the, there's his genius. That's the key to his success. And so from that point on, and I, I want to talk about buddies, but from that point on, I always went, oh, we get to spend time with these people. We get to pull up a chair around Roseanne's kitchen table and listen to the stories. We get invited and they get invited in our house. And it's that notion of being part of this family. And I went, that's, that's his genius because you really enjoyed hanging out at the Cosby house. And that, as opposed to, watch us be funny, we're coming at you with lots of jokes. Watch this, because at the end of the day, jokes are wonderful. I appreciate joke writers, but at the end of the day, it's the characters. When you think about Mary Tyler Moore, you think about Ted Knight and Lou and Mary and Rhoda and Phyllis. You think, I don't know how many of jokes you can recall, but you know what those who those characters were. You knew their point of view.
0: Absolutely. So, And then you go into a different world and you are involved in co-creating that as well, which was a Cosby kind of spin-off show. Mm-hmm. And that show went how many episodes? I mean, you weren't involved with all of them. But how, no,
1: it, it it went seven years or so. Seven, seven years went, or so. It went, it went. So
0: you go from one show that goes to syndication, and so you go into a different world. Your next show, <laughs> you co-create. That goes into syndication. So you can do no wrong. You're like, everything's going your way. Everything is going your way. You're like the hottest guy in town. And Roseanne does the tonight show about a month apart from Louie Anderson. A month later, the way the world worked back then, you did the tonight show. And literally you were on tour in 5,000 seat arenas and you're meeting for your own television show. And, you, a very prepared and very, very strong person when it comes to things, you met with Roseanne, she decided to work with you, but before the show went on the air, talk about 10,000 hours, I believe you spent an enormous amount of time with her. So take us through the process of meeting a young Roseanne for the first time, it was just a club comic, just done her first Tonight Show, to the point where... You got to the pilot episode of Roseanne.
1: What happened is after three years of being on the Cosby show, I went to Tom and Marcy and I said, you know, this is great. Number one show. And all." I said, but I'm not getting stronger as a writer because i'm only exercising the same muscle i'm doing the story muscle and if i'm going to be a better writer i need to i I need to do other things because i know carmen's going to fill in at that moment and john's going to fill in that moment so tom and marcy said we'll do anything you want to do what do you want to do you want to write a movie
0: hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a -a one-of-a-kind, all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Did you have an overall deal with them No, at that point? they just said, you I was on, on the
1: Cosby Show. Because this is
0: what's odd about Tom and Marcy here, <laughs> and this is what I think is admirable about this. And I, I had heard this, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. When you're an employer, it doesn't matter where you are. If you have somebody that's valuable, that's kicking ass in a place where people are dropping like flies, you never want to take that person out of that. But here you went to them, and they said, you know what? We believe in you, whatever you want to do. We know it'll hurt this other thing by taking you out. But we want to service you as a creative force because we know that you're going to take it to the next level.
1: That's and they they were very supportive. And they said, anything you want to do. And I said, well, I've got some movie ideas. I've got this idea for a TV series based on my wife's best friend in Detroit. And she was telling me these stories of these three women that worked in a factory. And this is all from real life again. One was married with kids, one was divorced with a kid, and one was single. And she said the amazing thing was the support system that they had in place, that these women would meet at Dunkin' Donuts and they would babysit each other's kids. And I thought, well, I came from a blue-collar town in southern Indiana. I know I grew up in a blue-collar family. I, I know this world. And so I went to Tom and Marcy and I said, um, I've got this idea about these three women, an ensemble half hour, these three women that work in a factory and kind of support each other. And one of them's married. And that was the original concept. And they go, we love it. We love it. And then they came back and said, we've got someone to pitch to you. Roseanne. And I I said, I I had no idea who she was. They said, she's stand up, but you should, you should watch her because we think she could play the married woman of the three women in the series. And I went, sure. And I'm, pretty golly shucks let's roll up our sleeves get a barn and put on a show okay (laughs) and uh so they so you see right there where the problem begins we've got an actor for your show and you go to the talent and say we've got a writer for your show okay and tom and marcy are two of the best and most honorable people in the business they were great i can't imagine anyone better to help me launch a career right so we, we started developing. Take uh, me
0: to your first meeting with Roseanne. Uh, and-
1: my very first meeting was at Karen Manda House in the backyard. I got there early as I tend to always be early and I, I'm waiting. Like and, today? Like today. And, uh, it's production habits, you know? And, uh, so I'm in the backyard and we're waiting and then Roseanne came and she sat down next to me. I'd never met her. You know, I'd seen her stand up and we, and, we sat down and uh, some small talk or something, and God, she turned to me and squinted her eyes and she goes, I'm a witch. And I went, yeah, well, you know, every, and I ain't fucking kidding. I have powers. <laughs> that was the first meeting. And I looked and I'm going, uh, well, oh, Okay. <laughs> And, and then she told the story that's in her book about being hit by a car and dying. And she's, and she was dragged under this car. And I guess she was pronounced legally dead for, a, I don't know how many seconds or minutes or whatever. And she says, I went down to a place and when I came back, I knew I had fucking powers. And that was the first meeting.
0: So you get in your car, you drive off. Are you saying to yourself, I can't wait to work with this person. Now, this is because this is one of those things, Matt, that I wanted to talk to you about because you were always a guy who didn't do things for the money, didn't do things for the... Th- you did things based on your heart and, and what you believed in and what you wanted. And you worked with who you wanted to work with. And if you didn't like it, you walk. But this was one time where you get in your car and you neglect your instincts and you go away from what your gut is telling you, you could have done anything you wanted. You could have hired anyone you wanted. You were powerful. You'd just done two syndicated shows and you had your own idea. You meet with a person. She says, I'm a witch and I have powers. After you're working with Dr. Cosby, why did you move forward and say, This is this is gonna be heaven on earth.
1: It's funny, I've never been asked that. A lot of it is out of loyalty to Tom and Marcy, to be honest. Because they gave me my first job in T V. They were there through different world. They didn't say Matt you have to stay on Cosby, Matt, whatever you want to do. I had very consciously set out a plan for myself. I knew I wanted to create, I, I still have the yellow pad because I, I, I visualize and I, I think ten, five years out what I want to do. I knew I wanted my own production company and one of my personal goals was to create two top 10 shows. That was something I had locked in that first season of Cosby and there was an instinct here and here's the true story, true Hollywood story, how the whole focus of the sitcom shifted and this isn't Hollywood bullshit. This is a true story. We're developing, I'm writing where I'm, you know, we're talking about the women in the factory and all of this. And I saw an episode of moonlighting. I get chills when I think about this because this is fortuitous. And I saw this guy on moonlighting, this big burly guy. And the episode was a reverse Cinderella where he lost his shoe. And I went, I called Karen Mandebach and I said, I don't know who this actor is. I've never seen him before, but that is Roseanne's husband. That has to be. And she says, no, she says, I've already found him. And I said, no, I promise you, I don't know this guy's name, but that has to be Roseanne's husband. She says, I've already got the actor. He's a Shakespearean actor. He's down in San Diego doing a play in, in, in San Diego. And so I called Tom and I said, I don't know this actor's name. Find out who this guy is that was on Moonlighting last night. Come this back. is before IMDb. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And sure enough, she had seen John Goodman doing a Shakespearean play. I had watched John Goodman on Moonlight. We were talking about the same person <laughs> and totally unbeknownst. To it. And we go, are you kidding me? And I said, literally everything inside you. It, I'm pretty instinctive. I went, this has to be so. Flash forward, we get John to leave his play to come up for a day. Roseanne is sitting in um in a, in a you know a conference room or something. She's sitting at the table, and we're kind of waiting. And we, I've written some audition scenes, and John Goodman walks in, and he stops and he looks at her, and she looked up at him, and she goes, "What the fuck are you looking at?" He says, "Move your fat ass," and sat down next to her. <laughs> <laughs> and God's truth. (laughs) And they started talking and bantering. And Tom and Marcy and I are there. And I went, holy shit, this is like they've been married for 15 (laughs) years. So all their instincts and afterwards, and they read the scenes and John being John Goodman, one of the most brilliant actors in in the history of TV and film. I mean, one of the greatest human beings. But also
0: living in a studio apartment at the time. Living in a
1: studio apartment at the time. And afterwards, Tom and Marcy and Karen and I looked at each other and go, holy shit, you cannot write that kind of chemical You can't write that. That is. And Tom and Marcy, being very smart people, said that's the center of the show. That has to be. It can't be an ensemble of three women. It's- that's the center of the show. And so that's when we, you know, we uh, reconceived. I reworked and we focused on that being the central relationship in the series. And. That, that is, I'm convinced the reason Roseanne was so successful is because of John Goodman. Because very early on, we knew Roseanne was going to be hard to take. Some people would be put off, especially men by her. And John Goodman being, if you watch the pilot, he's a romantic. He's talking about, you know, he's, when they retire, they're going to be on that boat. And I, and I very consciously said to Tom and Marcy, if, if, The audience sees Roseanne through John's eyes. We've got a hit because he's so in love with her. And Roseanne did have a funny line. She says, the reason the show was successful is because it proves that fat people fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But that whole notion of Dan being so in love with Roseanne and they could fight and they could do all these things. That was that's why people tuned in.
0: And then there was Mike and Molly. (laughs) anyway so you're going forward with the show you shoot the pilot do you know in your heart the show is going to be a hit
1: without a doubt there was no there was not a question
0: it was going to be a hit so then it gets picked up it's on the schedule and tell me all of a sudden the wonderful bright world of matt williams where everything goes right and everything has gone perfectly well it all falls apart i, I
1: don't even have to tell stories because they're legendary and everyone knows the roseanne stories but Te- they don't
0: know the stories when you're there
1: but what happened was it was it was i wrote the she i wrote the pilot matt didn't have anything to do with it I. it's all mine everything is mine I, you know i need all the credit i want the created by credit uh, uh, this is all based on me. He ripped off my stand up and I, I think we actually went to the WGA and they, they said, are you kidding me? But this, this won't even be considered for arbitration because I, I spent six months with Tom and Marcy developing this ensemble piece about these three women in the factory who ended up becoming Lori Medcalf and Crystal, the other character. So that, from that moment on, there was, there was whose show is it? Right, and we knew early on from the
0: first episode, uh, or or, uh,
1: after the pilot was shot, before we began the first episode, it was change the created by credit from her perspective. I want that. I want the created by credit. She want want to share it with
0: you, or she wanted alone. She wanted
1: it, and and Tom and Marcy, being honorable people, came to me and they said. You know, she wants a create, but this, this was your idea. We brought her in. And to their credit, now look, their producers, they did say, we've got a writer for your show. And they did say to me, we've got an actress for your show. So it was set up from the beginning as
0: whose show is it? Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. And start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you. To help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. But this is where I'm going to interject here. And and I think that it's going to be very odd talking about this. But I think it's important. (laughs) I've been the center of this many, many times. Right. There's two ways it's going to go when you have a really incredible creator, writer, and a really incredible comedian one way it's going to go is the phil rosenthal way with ray romano where phil goes off he writes the show and they say to ray look you haven't done anything you're making fifty thousand dollars for the pilot and that's applied to the series if it goes you're probably making twenty five thousand an episode you're not in this world unfortunately you're fired from the table read of news radio and replaced with Joe Rogan. We know you want to do television. This is the deal. You're, it's going to be based on the stand-up of, and it's going to be created by Phil Rosenthal. And then there's the other side of the coin, like the Peter Tolan side of the coin, let's say, who talks to Dennis Leary and says, look, Dennis, you've never had a show on television, but you're a big guy. We're going to get together And we're going to take your ideas and my ideas, and we're going to write it together. Even if I go off in a bungalow and write it, I'm going to send you the pages. You're going to make notes. And at the end, when we submit the script, it's going to say written by Dennis Leary and Peter Tolan. And for those of you who don't know, the way the Writers Guild works is that if your name is on the script that's submitted you automatically get the created by credit. You can even be in a situation where it says, written by Matt Williams, story by Roseanne and Matt Williams, and Roseanne will get the created by credit with Matt Williams. So as a showrunner, whether showrunners want to admit it or not, like yourself or executive producers, they have a choice early on, whether they have an idea or not, They can collaborate and share a created by credit or they can not. And normally when you're working with a young comic, who's never done anything before as a business person in your whole team, your creative team is saying, Hey, look, you've done Cosby, you've done a different world. You should push to have that. And the comedian should just be happy getting their series fee and maybe a based on the stand up of. So, this is a place where I do believe that you did have a choice, but I don't believe it would have made any difference anyway. It would not. I'll
1: give you an example and then I'll come back to that. I'm working with George Lopez right now. I pitched in David McFadden, we pitched George a concept and I said to George, but I don't, I said, here's the concept. And I said, but I don't know if I can write your voice. And he says, well, I'm going to write it with you. And I said, great. So this one, there's no question, George is in the room with David and myself every day writing. We are bouncing back and forth, changing characters. He's writing. He should, He's going to, of course, he's going to get a creative by credit because he's actually writing the script. The difference is when you have uh, a concept of three women with a factory and one's married and kids and all of this, and then you bring a voice into it. And believe me, this show would not. Did I? Did I? I'll give you an example, perfect example. I wrote the first draft of Roseanne pilot and my premise statement that for me the, in guiding what is the through line of the pilot was, uh, inspired by Roseanne standup. A woman has to be all things to all people. Okay. So a man can just be the guy. I'm a truck driver, I'm a carpenter, but a woman has to be chauffeur, shrink, cook, uh, you know, Madonna, uh, uh, all these things. The mother, the psychiatrist in the family, she's got to be all things to all people. Tom and Marcy and Karen read the first draft and they go, you know what? We love the world, we love the care, but Roseanne feels like a harried housewife. This is just a woman who's overwhelmed with life. And they were absolutely right. So I went back, I looked at her stand-up, and this is all from Roseanne, and went, "Oh, it can't just be I'm I'm all things to all people. That's too general. I am the domestic goddess, right? So, and when I went back and did a rewrite,
0: Roseanne's first Tonight Show, the the tagline and the point of view was that she was a domestic goddess. goddess.
1: So what I did is I went back and took three weeks and did a rewrite with the premise being i should be ruling the universe because i have all the answers and if the, the and basically so you see what that does that makes your protagonist proactive as opposed to reactive because i had a and i was my fault i had written her as a reactive point of view character she's overwhelmed with all she has to do as opposed to all you fuckers are stupid. If you just listen to me, the universe will run correctly. That's a very proactive point of view character. That's a proactive protagonist. And that was the rewrite that all of a sudden then the script came. But that was Tom, Marcy, and Karen looking at me and giving me that note.
0: I just wanted to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry so just go to com to the store check it out i know you won't be disappointed and have a great great holiday season as you know i was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing jfk from the grassy knoll this is a guy who spent 50 years in prison just got out we have exclusive footage of his interview And over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilledjfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next very special episode.
1: Ask yourself on a daily basis, why am I telling stories? What is my intent? What, what do I want to do as a storyteller? Because if not, you're just going to be a leaf in the wind. Oh, if they want me to write uh, penguins tap dancing. I can write that. Oh, they want clowns on a roof. I can do that. No. Who are you? What is your inherent soul value? Who? What do you value in life? What's important to you? How do you view the world? How do you see the world? What do you believe in? And infuse everything you do with that very personal, deep, Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer. they have all to gain It's never quite over Till so it all feels the same You pick your